Uh, good morning, guys. <clears throat> this, um, this has been a great uh, joy for me just these three weeks to be with you, and I, I really mean that. It's, uh, it's very, very encouraging to come to a room this size and see it filled with uh, men and a little after six in the morning, and uh, it's it's wonderful, really, what you're doing here. And uh, I'm so glad Sandy is uh, back next week uh, with you here. Um, I know I know you've missed him, and rightfully so. I've um, I've been Sandy's fortunate to be Sandy's friend for maybe about 25 years, and uh, he is uh, he is a wonderful, amazing leader. And uh, I know that uh, as you move forward in the study that he's prepared for this. Um, this fall, it's going to be a tremendous encouragement to you. And I'm very glad to have these uh, sort of this kind of interim time uh, to um, almost tell you whatever I want, which is sort of good. <laughs> um, let me ask you a question. Does the, does the term plausibility structure make any sense? I don't know whether it's a term that is used in business um, it's used in sociology, of all things. Um, it's, it's used in cultural analysis. And what it is is it's a way of saying that um, people have to understand something as plausible before they can move into it. That plausibility actually becomes a framework in which we live our lives, a, a sense of understanding about what... Um, uh, what the value of our lives is, what what the value of humanity is. Um, and that sounds pretty grandiose. Let me let me try and bring it down home to you. The plausibility structure that has basically defined the West, that is the United States and, and Europe for the most part, but even more especially the United States in uh, the last 100 years at least, the plausibility structure is that of, of uh, personal peace and prosperity, especially prosperity. The idea is that if we are prosperous, then we are, we are living the good life. Now, prosperous doesn't necessarily mean wildly rich. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm, I'm, you know, a billionaire several times over. But it does mean that there is a sufficient amount to enjoy those things which bring to me personal peace. Now, I, will, I would like to propose to you guys that we accept that as so much the norm. that it, we, It's like the air we breathe, you know. It's hard to look at it and be questioning about it in the same way as you've heard, you know, you don't ask a fish about the condition of the water. Because that's all the fish knows. And all we know, I think, is a certain way of looking at our lives and looking at culture that says what really counts is, is, a, sense of, is a sense of personal peace that brings to it the things that we want for ourselves, for our family, and that that's achieved by a certain level of prosperity. 
And I would suggest to you that, that even if you want to say, well, wait a minute, Skip, what about the Christian faith? Isn't that a plausibility structure? Of course it is, but only in a certain way. And oftentimes I want to suggest to you that it is not for most men, particularly in the West, it is not a sufficient plausibility structure that it replaces the one of personal peace and prosperity. In other words, we might say we're Christians. We believe we're Christians. We seek to live like Christians morally. We're moral people for the most part. But the reality is underneath what guides our lives, the tracks we really run on, what gets us up in the morning, what moves us into our day, what causes us joy and fear, as noted by say, recent times economically, what causes us joy and fear is personal peace and prosperity. And I do think that we find at a time like this in our culture when economically things are are difficult, that we, we see a lot of pain, but the reason we see most of the pain we do is that the plausibility structure we have for our lives is what it is. Now, I can't talk you out of that plausibility structure. It is too deeply embedded into the way all of us live, myself included. It's, it's, a, it is a, it's, just, it's deeply woven into the fabric of our, of our orientation to life. And it is difficult for us to imagine another plausibility structure. Some people believe that the economic situation, and I am no expert, so please, this is not, uh, this is not, uh, this opinion is worth what you're paying for it, I guess I'd say. Some people believe we have not seen the worst. That it's, yes, it seems to be getting a little bit better now, but that by, by, uh, by the time we get through with 2011 and 11, there are going to be unprecedented alterations in the economy of the West. And that we are going to see some things that are going to really, really shake us. Some people who are in the know are predicting inflation rates in light of the way spending is going now inflation rates of 133% over a five-year period. Now, again, that's not prophecy, and I don't want to speak where I do not know. What I'm trying to say is those, these kinds of things will shake our plausibility structure to the core. And the question is really, therefore, do we have a sufficient plausibility structure that transcends that transcends the the economic realities, even the political realities. Some people anticipate that if this happens, what I'm saying, there will be, in effect, some form of class warfare much more prominent in our society than we've ever seen. That there will be scapegoating going on. That there will be people who will be blamed for this, as there often are in, in, in cultures where things go badly. There's always a scapegoat. Historically, now, brothers, I don't say this to scare you or scare me. I don't know. I, am, I do not have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen next year or in 2011. But I do know 
that the question of a plausibility structure is very important. Now let me kind of jump to a different kind of idea, but then tie it in. What, what good is a preacher or a teacher of the Bible? What are we for? What are Sandy and I and the men that you, you're going to go to this conference and hear? What are they for? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to give you a plausibility structure that is out of God's word. That's what we're for. We're supposed to tell you about a way of life, a way of thinking, a way of moving through your life that actually is different. And the job that we have, therefore, is a job to make sense of this book and to do our best to bring to you the, the, the life, the divine life of Christ, which transcends cultures and transcends our plausibility structures and is there regardless of what plausibility structure we may be holding on to for this or that moment in our lives. That's my job. That's Sandy's job. And we count it a privilege to do so. One of the ways we seek to do this is we seek to make sense of this word. We seem to, we want to teach it and we want to try and, and, and make some shape to it. That's called theology, actually. All of us are theologians, whether we want to be or not. If you read the Bible ever, you're a theologian. Because when you read the Bible, you've got to ask, you've got to sort of organize it. You've got to think, you've got to bring some assumptions to it, some organizing categories, some plausibility structure. So what good's a preacher? A preacher is good if he helps you make sense of this book and does it in a way that moves us to think even just a little bit about alternative realities that can and should shape our thinking in our lives. Now, the reason I say all this, the reason I want to give you this kind of thought to, to chew on this morning is that <laughs> by the standard I have just said, Jesus was a lousy preacher. But was he a lousy plausibility, structure, giver? Absolutely not. The best. But he wasn't a preacher in the sense that you or I usually mean. In other words, you're going to go to a conference on discipleship, and well, you should. But discipleship is a, is a category. You don't find in the index of this book a section called discipleship where it lists one, two, three, four, the principles of Christian discipleship, the way you're going to get it at this conference. That's why this conference is good. What we come to in this book is we come to a collection of different forms of literature that are bound together and often seem to elude our immediate ability to grasp them and fit them into a plausibility structure. And the, the one who defies that category the most is Jesus Christ. Here's my challenge. Open the gospel, any gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and just start reading it. Try and read it as if you've never read it before or never heard a sermon on it before, and you don't know, you're brand new to it. And what you will find is that it is very confusing, that it is not linear not always logical in the way that we think of things. 
in the way we think of theology. Theology, here's discipleship, A, B, C, D. But Jesus doesn't talk like that. He doesn't teach like that. In fact, he admits, he says he teaches in parables. Why? He teaches in parables because some things are hidden. Actually, Jesus leans into the hiddenness of the gospel because it is not to be heard by everyone. In in fact, this is what I mean when I say Jesus is not a good preacher, quote, unquote. He's not a good preacher by the standards that we have for what a preacher ought to be today. Someone who makes sense of the Bible, gives us the ABCs, and helps it fit into a plausibility structure, either our own or another one that he's presenting to us. And I want to suggest to you that there's a good reason why Jesus did it this way. It's not just that he is non-Western in his orientation. We're more Western, rationalistic products of the Western Enlightenment and so forth, and so we think in these logical terms. It's not just that. It is that Jesus intends to draw us into something that we don't understand, that is bigger than us, that we cannot control, that we cannot control with our own abilities to make sense of it. Call it mystery, if you want. Call it, call it awe. Call it wonder. The problem is, brothers, none of you are writing right now. None of you are taking notes on what I'm saying, and I, I know it would be so, because what I'm saying isn't, doesn't lend itself to taking notes. But if I started out saying, there are four principles today that I would like to teach you about Jesus' teaching and the way he taught, you'd be right there, see? Because that's the way we think. And there's nothing wrong with the way we think. But it is remarkable that Jesus doesn't always do that. In fact, most of the time doesn't do it. And the reason is is that he wants us to engage his teaching and engage him at a level that is deeper, wider, richer than just the rational. This is why the plausibility structure that Jesus gives is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. This plausibility structure is a view of life. You read it. It is is a comprehensive way of approaching life. But it does not come across as an outline, does it? Jesus intends to draw us in. Jesus intends to confuse us before he makes things clear. Someone once said, I wouldn't give you a plumb nickel for simplicity on this side of complexity, but for simplicity on the far side of complexity, I'd give you a million dollars. See the point? We have to go through the complexity sometimes to get to the crystal clear simplicity. Just look at your own life. We have to go through a lot of muck, a lot of sin, a lot of addictions, a lot of hurts, a lot of pains 
before the gospel rings true and clear in our lives and we say, yes, I need Jesus. So Jesus begins teaching on the Sermon Mount in this, this quixotic way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What kind, of, what kind of opening illustration is that in a sermon? And he does it because he is not so much trying to define the poor in spirit as to get us to ask the question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because it is in the engagement, it is in the questioning, it is in the uncertainty even, it's in the complexity that we move through to find the simplicity in the answer. Does that make sense? <laughs> Funny question to ask. Do you understand what I'm saying by when I say that? Even if, it, even if it's sort of like weird. What we've said is that trying to bring some definition to the plausibility structure that Jesus begins to give us when he gives us the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly this first beatitude, is that as best we can tell as we look at the words and we try and understand what Jesus meant by them when he said them, that the poor in spirit are those who know their need of God. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that inwardly there is within them nothing they can do to please God. And the plausibility of structure that Jesus introduces here is that we are desperately needy people. Right away, that's a different plausibility structure than the one that we would define, I've tried to define as personal peace and prosperity. Personal peace and prosperity says work hard and you can have it. You can have it all. You can have what you want. You can at least have enough. And we define our reality on the basis of having. And Jesus comes along and says, the reality structure, the plausibility structure I want to give you is not one of having. It's one of needing. And what he's really saying, brothers, is the very, very difficult and challenging thing. That if we live our lives on the level of our need, rather than on the level of what we have, we will find what we really need. Because we will find him. Because he is sufficient in all my needs. He does for me what I cannot do for myself. He provides for me that which I truly need. So, what does it mean for us to need God? And I tried to say to you in the last couple of weeks that it means three things, at least. And, you know, it, it means maybe more than these things, but at least I think it means these things. It means that we, we learn how to be honest about ourselves and our own need. We learn how to say things like, I, I really have blown it. I have not pleased God with my life. I, I am actually a sinner I am actually a person who has transgressed God's law in thought, word, and deed. And I am a person who is in need spiritually for that which I cannot provide for myself. I need to be honest. And then as we push that honesty, what I've suggested to you is that we need to be honest in some ways at levels that we don't know how to be honest. 
If you had told me five years ago I would be standing in front of a room of, full of men in Memphis, Tennessee, telling them that I'm a drug addict, I would just, I would just did not even believe you. I would say you were crazy. But the devastations of life bring us to a place where we're, we're able to really be more honest. And it's in the honesty that we find the Lord responding. It's in truthfulness that we find him to be the truth. It's in saying that we need to be loved that we find him as the source of love. But saying those things about ourselves is not always easy. So honesty, and then I suggested to you that helplessness is also... The, the obvious thing that grows out of this beatitude. Blessed are those who need their, have, have a need for God, know their need of God. They're, they're people who can't make life work. And again, we often don't realize that we can't make life work until we really can't. And one of the biggest problems to realizing that is it seems like we're able to make life work most of the time. Because the plausibility structure we have for life allows us to believe we're doing okay. And that's why when a time comes like an economic crisis like we're in, it shatters the illusion that we're doing okay. Or it threatens that illusion anyway. And that's when we begin to realize, I'm helpless. I can't fix it. And that is hard, but it's very, very good. It's where we have to go. if we're going to know God. And that leads to the third thing I've talked about, and that's humility. Honesty, helplessness, and humility. Humility grows naturally from the first two. And it's it's actually the humble of heart, Jesus says, that, that come to know his wonderful, humble grace. So, right away, the first beatitude. We are just reeling if we really let it sink in. And in some ways, it doesn't get better in the next beatitude. And, and I want us to look at blessed are those who mourn in just the m- minutes we have left. Quite, quite briefly, I intentionally sort of wanted to talk first about what we've already talked about to kind of get us ready to think, okay, who are those who mourn? That's the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and then blessed are those who mourn. What kind of good news is this? Jesus, that doesn't sell well. Jesus, come on, you need to, you need to rethink the people you're talking to, Jesus. You need, to, you need to do it in a way that attracts them, you know, you know, honey catches more bees than, you know, vinegar. So come on, let's dispense with the vinegar. And Jesus says, it isn't vinegar. It's the plausibility structure that actually fits reality. And here's what he means. When we think of mourning, what do we think of? We think of bereavement. We think of a loss of a person that we love, and we're in mourning. Jesus' understanding of mourning is more comprehensive. What he's really saying in light of the first beatitude is I have to mourn the fact that I can do nothing to fix it, to fix myself, 
to fix life. I can't do it. And mourning is actually the realization that I am not able. In that sense, mourning is very passive. We don't do a lot when we mourn. We just look at the situation. We look at life. We look at ourselves and we say, golly, it isn't working. It's a, it's a miracle of grace that God brings to us to enable us to do that, particularly if on the personal peace and prosperity front we're doing okay. But we need that grace because we need to be able to be passive and not active. Activity is good. How the West was won, how Western civilization was made is on the basis of the ingenuity and entrepreneurship and initiative that people take. Great. But when it comes to our own souls, there needs to be moments of passivity. There needs to be moments of mourning. There needs to be moments of looking and saying, I can't, I can't pull this off. I don't know how to be honest the way I'm supposed to be honest. I don't know how to be helpless. I don't really even know how to uh, admit my humility. And I want to propose to you that when we start to mourn, two things actually happen to us. One is we begin to learn to accept life on life's terms or maybe better put, life on God's terms. And the second thing that happens to us is we get willing to do God's will. Let me explain for just a couple of minutes based on this, this wonderful beatitude. I learned to accept life as coming from a sovereign God when I realized that I can't make it happen the way I want it to happen. That I cannot change the things that I always want to change, particularly in myself. When I begin to recognize that anybody with an addiction, and I mean any kind of addiction, even broadly speaking, television, movies, certainly pornography, certainly addictive substances, that instant gratification takes too long for an addict. That I am very impatient. That I want what I want now. I cannot wait for it. And that impatience drives me away from the plausibility structure of Jesus. Secondly, I, I begin to realize that I, have, I keep trying to force things to my own will, my own desire. I'm trying to force reality to be the way I want it instead of learning to wait and see what will happen. To learn to live in what you might call quiet, watchful waiting. Most of you know, because you're, you're smart enough, that many, many problems take care of themselves without jumping in to fix them. And in fact, like you, I've outlived many, many more problems than I've solved. And that my solutions often complicate the problems. So I need to learn to accept reality, accept what I can't fix, And then, as a result of that, I learned patience. Patience 
is being still when I want to not be still. Patience involves careful listening to my reality. And if I could put it to you this way, patience is listening to the sounds between the words, which is the meaning of them. And learning to listen thereby creates patience in my life that leads me to the ability to accept reality not as I define it, which is humility. That's humility and, and helplessness and honesty. I begin to accept life on life's terms without really trying to change everything as if it could, uh, in fact, be changed. So much of my life has been spent thinking and acting out what I ought to be, what I think I ought to be, rather than who I am. And we do this in lots and lots of subtle ways. I think I ought to be a person who really reads a lot of good books. I think I ought to be. But I need to tell you this morning that I have tried to start reading Brothers Karamazov five times in my adult life. And I have never gotten past page 100. You know, that's actually a form of mourning for me. It really is because I have to look at that situation and say, I'm not what I think I ought to be. The counter side of that is I've discovered in the last two years I really like spy novels. I mean, I really like them. And I, I think I used to be ashamed to ever think that or say that. You know, spy novels, it is, you know, it's kind of cheap form of literature. Hey, I like spy novels. Get, you know, get used to it. <laughs> I have spent too much time in my life watching and envying other people's lives. And I think I'd rather spend the rest of my life living my own before God the way he's made me, not the way I think I ought to be made. The famous psychoanalyst Carl Jung, whose theology, by the way, I cannot recommend to you, the famous psycho psycho psychologist or psych psychoanalyst Carl Jung said after a very, very bad time in his life, he said, it cost me a great deal to regain my footing. Now I am free to be who I truly am. Most people who've been through very devastating circumstances in their life would say that. And my question to all of us is, how can we get there? How can we be free to be who we really are without going through devastating circumstances? How can we do that? Does, does God have to bring us to the very end of everything before we can begin to say, I'm who I am and who I am is I need you, Lord. Listen to this. Except in the cases of righteous anger, except in the cases of righteous anger, which, which I wonder if it's a lot more rare than we think it is, every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. 
no matter how unreasonable the other person may seem, I am responsible for not reacting negatively. Regardless of what's happening around me, I should be the one who looks at what's happening in me. And when I find myself disturbed and provoked by a situation, I should actually begin to think, this is God's means to get me to a place where I'm not right now, even in this little instance, even in the traffic jam I didn't expect, even in the person who cuts me off, even in the person who raises his or her voice at me and speaks in a way that just causes me, my blood to boil. I need to learn that I can react out of something different than what they've reacted to. And in fact, the truth is that whoever is upsetting me the most is probably my best teacher. And I have much to learn from that person. And I should actually, in some way, uh, thank that person. <clears throat> I don't know whether you're going to agree with this, but it's my job is to kind of try and pre present another plausibility structure. My peace, my stability, is directly proportional to my acceptance of life on life's terms. My peace, my stability, is directly proportional to my acceptance and it is inversely proportional to my expectations. The more I expect, the more I demand, the more I demand, the more I have resentment. Because my demands aren't being met. My expectations aren't being met. And I get resentful about it. And you know what resentment is? It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Lord, let me want what I have. Happiness is not getting what I want. It's being content with what I have. It's being accepting of reality the way it is. I have to give up wishing for a better yesterday because I don't get to define my own reality. See, a lot of what I, what I did in my life is I actually secretly wished I had a different past. Maybe this is really showing you how nuts I am. But I, I, I wanted a different past because I wanted to be a different person now. And I knew I was the product of my past. So I wanted a different past so I could create my own reality. Let me tell you something. Joel Osteen is wrong. We do not get to create our own realities. We don't. In the guise of American entrepreneurism and go-get-it-ism and make-it-happen-ism, we think we're supposed to go and create our own realities. But really, that is not the way of peace. The way of peace is to first accept the reality that God gives us and then look out responsibly and say, what do I need to do to change my environment? I am not calling about irresponsibility. I'm not talking about passivity in a negative sense. I am talking about accepting what is and then playing my part to fix what needs to be fixed. Acceptance means I take my past and my present as it is, as he has given it to me, rather than the past or present that I want. Um, 
gratitude begins to come out of my life when I learn to accept. When I start thinking about the ways in which I can be grateful, one of the things as a pastor that I tell people to do when they're struggling in their lives and things aren't going well and they don't feel like they're, you know, they're kind of discontent and unhappy with the way things are, and they go to bed unhappy and they wake up the next morning with that same knot of unhappiness in their stomach and anxiety and uncertainty. And I, I know that I can't give them a lecture on plausibility structures and why they have the wrong one. So what I do is I say, make a gratitude list at the end of every day. Sit down before you go to bed and write down five things you are grateful for that day. Actually, you might find that very difficult if you're not used to doing it. Five things you, that have happened that day that you're thankful for. Five people you've encountered that you're thankful for. It's amazing how thankfulness primes the pump of the right kind of acceptance and gives us the freedom and joy of living in the plausibility structure that Jesus would have for us. Does, does that make a little sense? It's priming the pump of thankfulness. And when we do that, what we begin to discover, and this is the second thing I just want to leave you with based on this second um, uh, beatitude, is willingness. We become willing to do what God wants us to do. In order for there to be a change of plausibility structure in our lives, we have to become willing. We have to become willing to let God change us. Acceptance with gratitude leads me to be willing to do God's will. I begin to pray, thy will be done. Maybe I pray that many times a day. And slowly I learn to seek God's will and not um, my own. Someone, I think it's C.S. Lewis. Yeah, it was C.S. Lewis who said, Heaven is the place where man says to God, Thy will be done. And hell is the place where God says to man, Thy will be done. And this prayer is very important, particularly in a crisis. In a family crisis, in a business crisis, when you really don't even know how to pray. You can't pray if you're honest. Look, guys, when my life fell apart about four years ago, when it just completely collapsed in every single way, I could not pray anything except two prayers. The first was what's called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the second was, thy will be done. And thy will be done is an absolutely central key prayer because so much depends on my internal willingness to see God's will done. And so much depends on my realizing, brothers, how much I pay lip service to that. But really, for nine-tenths of my life, I fight for my own will. I seek to accomplish what I want. I seek to make happen what I think ought to happen. Augustine, the great saint, you know, of the 4th and 5th century said, Lord, 
Command what you will and give what you command. In other words, make me willing to accept your will, Lord. Willingness to change, brothers, to change our plausibility structure, to change our whole lives, can actually be done slowly and with little tricks. Which side of your face do you shave first? I dare say probably all of us in the room shave one side or the other first, right? Switch it around. (laughs) Do it the other way. As a tiny little symbol of saying, Lord, I'm willing to do it your way. I'm willing to do life your way. And just because I've always done it this way doesn't mean it's the right way. You know, do you put your trousers on, you know, you put your right leg in first and then your left, or which way? Switch it up. It's silly, but it's symbolic of something that we can maybe see happening in other parts of our lives. You see, God's will is, to become willing to do God's will doesn't mean we're ready to do the big plan. It doesn't mean we're willing to sort of cancel our life now and go to Bunga Bunga land. That doesn't necessarily what's involved at all. God's plan isn't necessarily for us to know the next 20 years. It's to know today. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, the proverb says. A lamp unto my feet. It's not the lighting on an interstate highway that's lighting up 10 miles ahead. As I take a step, the light goes on. And I see the next step. And sometimes that's all I can see. I'm supposed to learn, I think, how to do the next right thing. The next right thing. What's the next right thing to do? Maybe it's to empty the dishwasher for my wife. Maybe it's to take a shower and go to Amen Bible study. Maybe it's to go have that conversation with my boss that I've been dreading. The next right thing. That's so responsible. That's so much the way the Lord would have us take our lives and plow our one acre rather than trying to figure out how to bring agriculture to the whole world. We've got to start with our bit. And we do that by saying, whatever it is, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to do what the next right thing is. And if you don't think you're willing to do God's will, if, you, if you're looking honestly and you're remembering the first beatitude and you're honestly saying, I don't think I want to do God's will. I want to do my will. Then I have a prayer for you. Pray that you would be willing, you would be made willing to do God's will. Pray that you would be made willing to do God's will. There's a dear friend in Dallas I had lunch with yesterday, uh, just before I flew back here yesterday afternoon. He's a guy, a man the age of many of you, maybe he's about 42 or something like that. I married Uh, him to his wife about 14 years ago. 
and he had an affair with his assistant this past summer. It lasted a couple months. And he actually thought he had gotten away with it. And then she, um, she started screaming bloody murder because she felt betrayed when he said it was over. And this is a young man who's very, very, very successful. And, um, you know, when a situation like that happens, a company brings in all the human resource lawyers and they clamp it down real quickly and they've got exact procedures for they know what to do. And guess what? He was out and she stayed. And his life has been devastated, not by the loss of a job, but by his realization of what he had done to his wife and the pain that they are now living through together. Here's the irony. As awful as his life is right now, if he were standing here right now, he would say to you, I have never been closer to Jesus in my whole life. Why? Because he realizes how desperate his need is. He realizes how helpless he is. He's humbled by his own failure. What's the difference between Saul and David in the Old Testament? Why was the kingship removed from Saul? And yet for David, there would always be, the promises that there would always be one on David's throne. Why? I mean, look at what they did. All Saul did was he refused to kill a few animals and firstborn. And Samuel said, as a result of that, your kingdom is being taken away from you. And Saul said, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's pretty bad. But uh, we're going back to the people now, Samuel, so let's put on the good front because I'm still the king. David what happens to David? He, he lusts after a woman. He commits adultery with her. He tries to lie and hide about it. He has her husband come back under false pretenses. When he won't sleep with his wife because he's at war, he sends Uriah to the front lines to be murdered. So uh, adultery, lying, murder, stealing another's wife seems a lot worse than Saul. But David is called a man after God's own heart. Why? What happened when Nathan confronted him and he realized the truth? He ripped open his shirt. He lay down and cried. He wept out of sorrow and repentance. So much so that the uh, people in the court said, David, come on. I mean, you're the king. You got to sort of put on a good face here. We know you blew it, but and David didn't care who saw him. David didn't care who saw him saying, "I need God." So the difference you see is: has have I gotten to a place in my life where I'm willing to say, "I am, I'm honestly." going to tell you that I'm helpless. I'm honestly going to tell you, therefore, that I'm humble. And then I'm going to begin to accept life as a sovereign God gives it to me, being responsible, but accepting life as he gives it to me. And, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to seek to do his will with my life.
And where I can't do his will, I'm going to ask him to make me willing to do his will. It's a different plausibility structure for life. But I believe it's the right one. Because I believe it's the one the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. And it's the one we are to um, shape and mold our lives before him to live. Lord, our God, thank you so much for the privilege of being with these brothers and thinking through these things. Lord, if I've been confusing, um, in some ways I'm sorry, in other ways I'm not. Because if what I've said leads to uncertainty or questioning, that's good, that's good. Help us to press on with those questions without having it all nailed down, without having it perfectly clear. Help us to, in a sense, be lost in the sea of your boat. And, and having to let the wind and the waves take us where they will for a while so that we really walk with joy and love and peace into this life. We pray that you would let us do this for the sake of the wonder and glory of Christ who is with us, in us, and through us. Amen.